Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hey everyone, this is Jackie Tarsitano, a rising M2 here at Loyola Stritch. Fun fact about me, I took three gap years between undergrad and medical school. It was during those gap years that, while I was working as a research assistant, I met Megan Trottier, who I have the pleasure of interviewing today. Megan is a board-certified genetic counselor and adjunct professor. In addition to counseling, she has over 10 years of research experience and has published papers in prestigious journals like Stem Cell and Journal of the American Medical Association. She currently works for Memorial Sloan Kettering, and the opinions she expresses in this interview are solely her own and do not express the view or opinions of Memorial Sloan Kettering. So, Megan, how are you doing? Great. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks for inviting me to this podcast. Of course. Um, You are one of my favorite coworkers, and I learned so much. I actually really learned so much from you about genetic counseling and the role of genetic counselors in general. Well, I'm glad to hear. (laughs) So going off of that, what made you want to be a genetic counselor? Yeah, you know, that's actually probably an interesting question to ask any genetic counselor, because I think for the most part, none of us had probably ever heard of genetic counseling. We just kind of stumbled into it from various ways. Um, I personally had just finished or was finishing a master's degree in molecular genetics. Um, So very like wet lab, basic research um, based. And I thought it was really cool, but like felt very removed from actually helping anyone directly. Um, And I was really fortunate that my supervisor was a geneticist. And so he knew all about genetic counselors, of course, and sort of got me into the... um, speak with some genetic counselors and, you know, thought it would be a good fit. So um, what I really liked was that I wasn't going to lose my like science research background necessarily or focus, but it would be much more applicable um, to helping patients more directly. So it seemed like a really good fit. So you mentioned you had a master's, but that was in molecular biology kind of separate from this. What other education did you have to get to (laughs) be a genetic counselor? Yeah, so it's also a master's degree. I'm just like racking them up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's a master's degree in genetic counseling. And I think they're sort of playing around with different ways to do that now. I think there's some remote options. There's even talks about doing a PhD. Um, But the traditional route, which I took, was a two-year master's degree that was sort of like a hybrid thesis focus Um, So we did have to do, you know, a thesis project, but really it was heavily focused on the clinical side of things. So we got a lot of hands-on experience with various um, clinics that see genetics patients. So like prenatal is kind of the bread and butter of genetic counseling. We did cancer, ocular, cardiac, all sorts of things, pediatric. And so, yeah, I mean, again, a lot of genetic counselors don't end up focusing on research. They really focus on the clinical side, but, but it is you know, there is a research component to it as well in terms of training. Okay. So it's a two-year master program or depending on how long you take to do your master's. And then is there any additional training afterwards? So you, 
you do a lot of shadowing as you're training. So you actually get clinical experience. You have to get a certain number or see a certain number of cases participate to a certain extent before you can be certified, um, you know, before you can write your board exam. But once you graduate from the program, you kind of learn on the job. Um, So you kind of get a sampling of what's out there and then you pick a specialty and you delve into it more really on the job. And then you certify, which is, you know, across all specialties. Certification is? So there is a national board that certifies genetic counselors. So it's a really intensive exam that we have to take to become certified. And some states also require licensure, which is more like paperwork. It's not that hard to get, but um, there's sort of two options, I guess. You basically have to be board certified, and then you may also need to be licensed. So what is your current job? Yeah, so right now, and for the past few years, I have been working at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So I've really had a focus on hereditary cancer syndromes. And in total, I've been there for about almost six years now with a little a little stint at NYU where I met you. <laughs> but I have a little bit of a unique role in that I'm only in clinic one day a week. Um, so I see a few patients, basically anyone who either has cancer or a family history of cancer that looks suspicious for something hereditary. And then the rest of my time, I do focus on implementation science projects. Um, so there is a pretty heavy research focus from my role in particular, which I'm really lucky. I feel fortunate because it's the perfect balance for me. And I think it's becoming more and more common, but it's not the most common role for a genetic counselor yet. I mean, that's where I met you was in a research role. And I learned so much from you about the role of genetic counselors in research and like why they are necessary. And, you know, especially with the advent of easily being able to get DNA samples. Do you want to expound upon that of like, Why do you think genetic counselors are necessary in research? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point. Like people joke, it's so easy to get DNA. You can just ask for a sample like from someone on the street. That's not the issue (laughs) nowadays. Um, The issue is what do you do with that? (laughs) And what does it mean for that participant and for science more broadly? And so I think genetic counselors just generally can be helpful in research because they really have skills in communicating pretty difficult concepts with people with a range of backgrounds. So you can discuss it with people who have a science background or maybe no science background or medical background at all. And so when you're trying to get informed consent for research, which you have to do for good reason, I think a genetic counselor can really help explain those concepts and make sure that that consent is informed. And more and more, as we talk about genetic research, the concept of returning research results is becoming much more important. And I think there's a lot of ethical questions around there. There's a lot of considerations from the participant perspective. And I think genetic counselors can have a really important viewpoint and help navigate that perspective as well. And then we're very organized people generally. (laughs) So that also Just useful people to have around in general. (laughs) No, I remember when we were working together, you know, you brought up some really great points to me that I hadn't thought of before of like, well, okay, you're using this person's blood as a control. What if you find something? Like, do we tell them? 
By something, I mean like a marker for Braca, a marker for Huntington's. Like, what do you do in those situations? And it was, you know, it still haunts me. Of like, not the, not that anything like that happened to me, but just like, oh yeah, what do you do in those situations? If consent wasn't like, do you did the participant consent to like knowing those things or not knowing those things? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and I think when you're talking about research, the sort of fundamental of it is you don't really know what you're going to find, right? That's why you do the research. (laughs) Um, And sometimes you're digging into things and you don't even know what you could potentially expect. And so that's where informed consent is so important as we do that more and more as we look at, you know, whole exome, whole genome, we have no idea what we're going to uncover in controls or in, you know, whatever group. So I think preparing participants is really key and having a plan before instead of, you know, figuring it out on the fly really helps everyone involved. And I think, I think honestly, most people don't really know what a control is. And I think it sounds so benign, but if you're looking for genetics in a control, you can uncover things just as readily as you are, you know, in an intervention group or an affected group. So Yeah, I remember, I think in the lab where we both worked, some people were like, just take my blood. And I was like, absolutely not, (laughs) not without consent. Um, And the IRB was on board, you know, they said, you don't have, you don't, you don't have approval to just draw members blood, even if it's just for practice. Because again, you never know, you never know what you're going to find. It's almost like a black mirror situation. It's like, what can go wrong? And it's like, a lot of things can, it's... Yeah. I I mean, it's not in a research context, but like just to share and when, once you experience this, you never forget it. And that's where, you know, again, it's unlikely that issues will come out, but if they are, the risks are so huge that (laughs) you can't tread lightly. But even with certain like direct to consumer tests, we've had incidences where a father got the 23andMe or Ancestry or whatever test, probably not Ancestry, 23andMe for their like young daughter. And she found out she had a BRCA mutation and she's 12. Like that's a lot of information to process, not just for the daughter, but the family. And, and then that means someone else is BRCA positive. It's coming from one of her parents. And there's just like so many effects and so many repercussions that are very real when it happens. So if you, if in your world, if you like had control over like all 23 me and all like kind of at home genetic testing, would you want it to be 18 and up? Like you have to be able to consent to this? That's a good question. I mean, the beauty of those companies is that it's making genetic information more broadly accessible. So there aren't those types of rules. And I understand the appeal for that. Um, I think what probably is most important is that whoever sample it is should have to give consent if there were some way to regulate that. And if they're too young, not just age-wise, but maturity-wise or you know whatever to really comprehend what they're agreeing to, then they shouldn't be doing the test. Mm-hmm. Um So I don't know. Age is a number. I feel like you can get quite a lot of variability there, but I think it's just being being informed in in what you're doing. Kind of tying into that, should I, a healthy 25-year-old with no real family history of any 
textbook genetic diseases, should I get 23andMe? Like, what would it tell me? I think if you look at it from like a recreational perspective, it's fine. I think you should know, you know, the risks that we just talked about. You could get something unexpected. I think they make you sign consents before you agree to unveiling any of those results. So you have opportunities to make that decision as you go through the process. Um, Again, I don't really know about every single direct-to-testing company. I know there's a bunch out there, but I, I would assume and hope that that's the case for them. But I think, you know, for recreational purposes, there's there's no harm. But at the same time, if if there is any sort of concern in someone's personal or family history, then it's definitely not the right test because it's not a comprehensive test. It's not a medical grade test. So on the flip side, I've had people come to us and luckily they've come to us, but they've said, I don't think I need genetic testing. I was negative on 23andMe and that's just not appropriate testing if there's a medical reason to be doing it. So you have to think about both sides. Like, is it going to give you too much information that you don't want or maybe not enough information? And it really depends on your situation. But again, for fun, it's, I think, fine. Um, Like, I don't really know how they tell this, but I learned that I'm apparently more likely to be scared of public speaking. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> wrong field. <laughs> um, so whatever, you can find out kind of funny things. but Yeah, and then what person should seek a genetic counselor, a physician, a geneticist, as opposed to just doing 23andMe? Or I'm not trying to call out 23andMe, but just doing an at-home test. Right, right, a, a direct-to-consumer test. So... You know, there are some kind of classic red flags in genetics. One is if there's sort of clustering of certain conditions, it could be cancer, it could be, you know, birth defects, it could be other things that, you know, happens in multiple family members, that's kind of suspicious. Um, If someone's diagnosed with something in the family that's younger than we would expect, For instance, you know, breast cancer in the 20s is really not what we would expect for someone at average risk. That's a red flag. Um, Other things are like related to fertility. So if there's someone who's had multiple miscarriages or pregnancy, like stillbirths, things like that, that's a red flag for us. So anything that's just a little bit out of the ordinary and that seems to be a pattern in a family is definitely worth looking into. Again, it could not be genetic, but it's probably something to look into in a little bit more detail. So in a scenario where you have someone who someone who has a concerning clustering of cancer in their family and they go to you, they get genetic testing done, what is then your role? Like, what does a genetic counselor do? What is your role yeah. to the patient clinically? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's similar to on the research side, but essentially what what we want to do is is provide information to that person before they've started the genetic testing um, so that they know, you know, what could come from it and are they ready for that? The testing part's easy. It's a blood sample or a saliva sample in most cases, but the information you can't take back, you know, once you have it. And so that's the part that we want people to be prepared for. Um, it's also not always a yes or no answer. There can be sort of uncertainties that arise or may not always get an explanation. So we just want people to be as prepared as possible for those 
potential eventualities. I don't know if you can hear this ambulance. New York. New York. You, you are in New York. <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah. So so that's a big part of what we do. Um, we also make sure that the right test is ordered. So we do an assessment and decide what makes sense for that family in terms of genetic testing. There's definitely a trend towards just more, more genes is better, but that's not always true. You know, we try to keep things focused on what's medically relevant and what people can actually do something about. So we, we also kind of look into that. And then at the end of the day, once results are back, we help people interpret those results and, you know, make sense of it for them and their family, because having a BRCA mutation um, can mean different things for different people at different stages of their lives. So we make sure that, again, it all makes sense and that they have the most appropriate information um, and relevant information available for them. You'd be surprised by how many messes we have to clean up where people are given the wrong information based on their genetic test results. So that's what we try to avoid like wrong information not trying to say like Megan blame someone but like wrong information from like <laughs> like from the internet from friends from like a physician who maybe casually told them something that they weren't quite ready to hear yet or it could be any of the above but often it's someone who you know may not be as well informed about certain genes, especially newer genes that we're just learning about and may give wrong information. You know, they may think there's an ovarian cancer risk and this person needs to get their ovaries removed preventatively when in fact the data doesn't support that. <laughs> Speaking from real experience. Oh. <laughs> um, so those kinds of things. We just want to make sure people actually get the correct information. So what does it actually look like for you to work in a multidisciplinary team? Do physicians refer patients to you? Do you recommend patients to go see physicians or other healthcare providers? Like, how does that actually work? Yeah, I mean, it probably differs depending on where you practice. But like where I work, oftentimes people will refer to us and we sort of take the ownership of ordering most tests and interpreting most genetic tests which makes it simpler because, again, then we don't have to clean up messes. We're there from the start, which is always nice. <laughs> um, so we get a lot of referrals. And then depending on what the results show, we would refer that individual back or to a different provider, you know, if they need breast cancer care or ovarian cancer care or prevention and things like that. So there's definitely a lot of communication between us and other teams in terms of who they should refer and how to best care for these individuals. Um, but I think just like I would never order, I don't know, an MRI to interpret it because that's not my area of specialty. It's sort of the same with genetics. If you don't really know how to interpret every single gene that's on that panel, leave it to the experts. <laughs> we are in a really cool age of genetic research progress and, you know, from advancements in sequencing, you know, whole genome sequencing being so cheap, um, to gene editing techniques like CRISPR becoming more and more available. In your line of work, what ethical issues does this bring up? Yeah, I mean, we often get asked the question about gene therapy. Um, you know, if someone is found to have 
uh, predisposing mutation, they want to know, can they stop it? Or can they do something about it? And it's not something readily available in the cancer world, probably shouldn't be readily available in many areas just yet. Um, But it's certainly moving in that direction, which I think is amazing. And, you know, there are certain drugs now that target certain mutations. So it's kind of all within this like personalized medicine, gene editing realm. Um, But I think obviously the biggest, one of the biggest concerns or considerations is safety. You know, at what point can we actually go live with a technology and feel that it's has benefits that outweigh the risks for that individual um, and then for society as well. Um, You know, we really need to understand what are potential side effects. And especially when we're talking about gene editing, we need to think about what that means for future generations because it's not just going to affect that one individual. It gets passed down the line. And so it could have huge repercussions. I think another question that people bring up, and I think is an important one, is where is the line between medical necessity and recreation? And like, what should we really be using gene therapy and CRISPR for? You know, at at some point, I could see it getting very blurry, like, is height, you know, a potential factor? Is intelligence a potential factor to mess with? Um, And it reminds me of, in my training, we spoke with um, or or had access to a number of groups that were dedicated to certain genetic conditions. So for instance, there's like a Down syndrome group or a chondroplasia group, a bunch of them exist. And you always kind of have to, or I always think back to my experiences hearing from them because you know, we routinely talk to women um, in a prenatal setting about whether their child has Down syndrome and talk about, you know, the option of abortion or other things. And on the flip side, you have these support groups and, you know, these groups that it can be very sensitive to them. Like they are, you know, living full, useful lives. And we are talking about that as a negative. So it's just really important to think about all aspects, I think, when we talk about editing out certain traits. (laughs) I guess in another thing that arises is, you know, is this equitable? So these techniques are going to be presumably very, very expensive, at least initially. And if we're talking about giving certain advantages um, with gene editing, Will that widen the health care disparities that already rampantly exist in our society? And I think that's just something that, especially, you know, today, I think people are thinking more about it and talking more about it and recognizing how important that is. And I think that's a big topic of discussion as well. No, I think that's, I mean, I think that's the plot of Gattaca. Like, yeah, it's a huge... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's it's crazy. Exactly. I mean, obviously, like medical inequities exist in all aspects of medicine, but you know, specifically when you get to something as dramatic as gene editing and having such a huge effect, like that could change everything. Yeah, yeah, and it could trickle down. You know, we're maybe just talking about editing one specific trait, but like, what are the long term repercussions to that, and what does that mean for society? I guess. Yeah, it's. 
Gattaca. <laughs> Again, it's a Black Mirror Twilight Zone episode. Like, <laughs> yeah, it could be. It could be unless you know we have these discussions and think about these issues before. Before we actually use these techniques. So again, promoting genetic counselor people like you to, you know, help us navigate the repercussions of this because right. I feel like in, you know, tying back to like our time and research together, I feel like the inkling is like, go, go, go. Like we can get these yeah. DNA, go, go, go. Like Yeah. No. And I often felt like, you know, the Debbie Downer of the lab because I'd be like, no, we're not ready to report out results. Like they don't have meaning yet. <laughs> um, and I understand on the research side, there's a lot of pressure to get things out and, and moving. And that's the beauty of research. You know, you, you really, I don't want to say put the cart before, before the horse, but a little bit, like that's the point of research is to make progress and, you know, I guess my job was to pull it back a little bit just to be a bit more thoughtful. <laughs> you were very good at it. And you were you were the you slowed us down where we needed to be. It's like I was apart. You slowed it down where it needed to be slowed down. Um, <laughs> I know I had to hold you back, right? <laughs> oh yeah, me the lowly lab tech. I'm like trying to, you know, crisper some people and you're like, Jackie, please. <laughs> Let's think about this. <laughs> <laughs> I think my my error was like I was just the one that was too willing to donate blood. I'm like, yeah, take it, anything you want. Like you're like Jackie, think. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, let's take a step back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you kind of mentioned it for a second of um, personalized medicine and like you know that is always I see ads for it all the time on TV of like oh find out what like sensitivities you have or what like sleep issues you may have with a genetic test and like you know kind of this idea of like using genetics to dictate your you know I guess your medical treatment so that's literally the definition of like personalized medical care do you think that'll be something everyone has access to and is that a good thing yeah I think I think personalized medicine has probably fewer ethical issues than like gene therapy, for instance, because you're basically working with someone's existing genetic makeup and tailoring medical decisions based on that. So I think it is a really important area. It's sort of a buzzword, (laughs) too. Um, I don't think we're fully there yet. I know in the cancer field, we've made a lot of progress. Um, Even in the time that I've been working in the field, we've made progress, which is pretty amazing. I looked it up and I think the term was like coined in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So that was quite a while ago. And I don't think we were there for quite a while, but we are kind of now. So, you know, I think where it starts, at least in the cancer field is, you know, we're looking at the makeup of tumors actually and figuring out what treatment they'll respond to based on their mutations and mutation load. And I think that's really incredible because, you know, it lowers potential side effects and off, you know, um, treatment targets and things like that. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of promise in that area. I do worry that the term makes it seem bigger and better than it is. I mean, we're not able to look at someone's genetics and fix them and tell them exactly what they need to do. And I don't know that we'll ever be there. I don't think genetics is ever going to be 
like the crystal ball to your future. <laughs> I think it just guides us in one direction or the other. Um, and so that's important to know. And that's something I talk about with my patients. Even if there is a mutation, for instance, it's not a hundred percent chance that any of, you know, the risks will come true. It just guides us to being a little bit more careful with that person's care. Yeah, that's, again, it's the things you do and like the way you have to like, you know, use this incredible tool of science, but also bring it back to like reality and what the actual implications are. And, you know, just because we know exactly like what mutation that there's a G instead of an A doesn't mean we can do anything with that, you know? Yeah, it doesn't mean that's your fate necessarily either. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's still some uncertainty there. I think there's definitely promise. And I mean, you know, thinking back many years ago when, you know, people would get chemo based on just the location of the cancer, and now we're basing it on the mutation profile of the cancer, like that's, that's, you know, big progress, which, um, hopefully will continue. And, you know, in the non-genetics field, the same exists, like certain mutations for um, muscular dystrophies may be targeted for um, treatment, which, you know, otherwise wouldn't have existed in the past. So, I mean, there's definitely areas where where personalized medicine is moving quicker than others, but I, I, hope, I hope eventually we'll get there. Um, I think we can learn a lot from, from our genetics for sure. Oh, definitely. Um, I want to ask you also, what would you say to someone interested in pursuing a career in genetic counseling? Um, that is a good question. I mean, I guess I would say do your research, learn about the field, <laughs> um, figure out what it is that excites you. Is it sort of the patient interactions? Is it the like kind of research, which if it's research, maybe genetic counseling isn't the right fit for you, but I shouldn't say that. Um, You can do implementation science, which is really exciting, kind of making the process of genetic counseling better. Um, Is it the education or communication aspect? I think it's really important to think about what is sort of driving you to be interested in genetic counseling, because it's actually been around for a long time as a field. Like I think the first program at Sarah Lawrence started in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, but it's really being used in very new and exciting ways. Um, and so you have a, I guess, blessing and a curse. Blessing is that you can sort of personalize to some extent your role and your focus on your interests. So that's why it's important to know which aspects excite you. Um, the curse of that is you kind of get pulled in a million different directions um, because people maybe don't know what you can and can't do. Um, So you have to be really prepared to sort of set your boundaries and fight for them. Um, But I think, yeah, just thinking about what it is that interests you. And I would really encourage people to um, speak with a genetic counselor, try to really understand what the day-to-day looks like, what's involved, um, shadow a genetic counselor if possible. There's obviously like HIPAA and privacy concerns potentially there, but there are ways around that. Um, 
there is a national society, the National Society of Genetic Counselors, <laughs> um, which has a lot of webinars and actually lists contact information for genetic counselors. So those are, you know, other ways to sort of learn about the field and what, what are the hot topics. And then there are lots of podcasts too, for instance, that um, speak to genetic counseling. So I think all of those can make an, or help you make an informed decision. Yeah, I think like, um, what's the one called? Like the Beagle Has Landed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good genetic counselor. I don't know. It's run by genetic counselors, right? Yeah. So I think it's actually Laura Hersher, who's, um, who's a very well-known genetic counselor um, in New York City, actually, who, who does that podcast. So she covers some really interesting topics. So interesting. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity. I know you wanted to mention all of us. Yeah, yeah. So that's not my venture by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) But just, you know, when you were asking a little bit about should you or someone like you embark, you know, in using 23andMe, it made me think of things to consider. Um, And one big one that we talked about is how are they using your data Um, And so I know 23andMe does research and some of it's really cool, um, but, you know, just think about wherever you're giving your sample, what are they doing with that and what is their sort of motivation and goal. Um, And that made me think about all of us, which is a government run, huge scale research project. They're trying to build a database um, that involves, you know, genetic components and genetic information, but other health metrics um, for at least a million people from all sorts of backgrounds, races, um, ages, health profiles um, to really try to improve the data that we have so it's less ideally like Eurocentric and much more representative of the states um, as a whole. And so it's a really interesting research venture. Again, just like with 23andMe, look into the fine print and how they're going to use your information, how they protect your privacy, et cetera. Um, But I think it is really important just to think about, you know, how you can contribute to research by contributing samples um, and what that can mean for sort of the greater society. I personal, like on a personal note, my husband is of Egyptian ancestry. So I very strongly encouraged him to participate because again, there are certain um, ethnicities and backgrounds that are just really underrepresented in genetics research. And so it's a important opportunity, I think, to, um, to contribute. Oh, definitely. Like, I think it's a huge thing in genetics in general, where like, a lot of our samples are very white. Like, Yep. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's good that we were able to get those samples, but we need to move beyond that. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Um, Well, Megan, it was really great to catch up with you and to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And I'm so happy to hear you're on your way to becoming a doctor. And now you know about genetic counselors. So like, let's, you know, make this work. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.